0: Light a campfire, and everyone's a storyteller. Join us for some
1: thought-provoking and beyond fireside chats.
0: Welcome to Leave Our World a Better Place. My name is Kasia, and today I welcome back Charlie DeFoss, ecological monitored and beyond Pinder Private Game Reserve. Charlie will be sharing some details about the Pangolin Conservation and Rehabilitation Program, currently running at the reserve. Charlie, thank you so much for coming back to chat to us once again.
1: Thank you. It's nice to be back.
0: Today we're going to chat about a project that's quite close to your heart at Pinda, and that's the the pangolin research that you're doing there. Now, I know pangolins were a little bit of an unknown species, and not very many people had actually heard about them. I think they've received a bit of a spot in the limelight now with the COVID-19 pandemic and a lot of talk about the wet markets and the illegal wildlife trade in the Far East. Just so we set the scene, can you tell us a little bit about pangolins and what makes them so special as a species? So,
1: yes, pangolins are very unique. They're the only scaly mammal on Earth today. It's completely covered in scales, but it's able to produce milk, which it actually uses to wean its pup. And then, interestingly enough, historically it was classified part of the order Xenathra which includes your anteaters, your sloughs, and your armadillos. But more recent researchers actually showed that it's a unique order on its own called the philodota order. And it's closer related to your carnivores, specifically the dog family, and therefore we refer to its offspring as pups. So completely unlike anything else on Earth. We joke a lot that they look like moving pine cones or little... T-Rexes, and it's really interesting to get to observe them.
0: (laughs) I actually had no idea that they were related to the dog family, and that's fascinating. Now, perhaps because there isn't so much awareness about pangolins, I don't think many people know how threatened they are, and I know there are different species found in, in Asia and Africa. Do those species face different threats?
1: Yes, we have eight different pangolin species worldwide, four of which occur in Asia and four within Africa. Looking at the Asian species first, we have our Chinese, our Sunda and Philippine pangolin. Those three are currently listed as critically endangered. And then lastly, in Asia, we also have the Indian pangolin, which is currently listed as in danger. Then sticking to the Asian pangolins first, the major threats that they face is mainly that they're used for meat consumption. It's seen as a big delicacy throughout Asia. There's a lot of value to being able to consume pangolin meat in terms of it as an indication of your your wealth status. And then apart from that, they also are traded a lot for their scales for various traditional medicine uses. And research today think that the Asian pangolin species within China, China's pangolin populations, have been reduced by more than 94%. And that in various regions throughout China that they are now locally extinct. Apart from that, also the rapid loss of And deterioration of habitat has also placed additional pressures on the remaining Asian populations. But then if we look at the four African pangolin species, we have our white-bellied and our giant pangolin, which are currently listed as endangered, and then lastly our black-bellied pangolin and our temnex ground pangolin that we have here at Ambion Pinda Private Game Reserve, and both of those species are listed as vulnerable. Very similar to the Asian species, your African pangolin species are also consumed as a bushmeat, which place quite a lot of pressure on them. And then apart from that, also the scales so that is used in various traditional African medicine, But now, due to the decline in the Asian pangolin species, there is an increase in the Mm -hmm. developing intercontinental trade, um, in which the African pangolin species are actually poached and traded to, to Asia to supply the demand there. Also the same, also facing habitat loss, which is resulting in a secondary factor that is putting a lot of pressure on these species. But then... Within Africa, the other main threat specifically within South Africa is actually the use of pesticides have very negative effects on the pangolin populations within our country. And then lastly, also electrical fences. Because a pangolin's defense system is to roll into a little ball, an electrical fence has a very low-lying tripwire and a pangolin walks into it. They actually end mm-hmm. up wrapping themselves around that bottom tripwire because it's their defense to go into that ball. And then they unfortunately succumb due to electrocution. So that's a major threat that we are actually facing within South Africa as well.
0: Charlie, you mentioned that in Asia, quite a few of the pangolin species have become extinct. The project you're working on at Pinda also aims to reverse a local Mm -hmm. extinction. Can you explain what this means and how long it's been since pangolin were last spotted at Pinda or in the area?
1: Yes, the last sighting for pangolins on Pinda dates back to 1986. And what we mean with a local extinction is that there is no longer a viable population. Within Pinda, because there's so many game guards and field rangers out and about 24-7, we're sure somebody would have spotted one by now if there were still one on Pinda since 1986. But local extinction for the region means there might still be one or two individuals that are still surviving. But They won't be able to find one another, reproduce, carry on with the population. And that's what we refer to as a local extinction. And what makes this project so unique is it's the first time that anyone has ever tried to reintroduce pangolins into an area where they have gone locally extinct. But it's also one of the longest post-release monitoring projects on pangolins after having released them or reintroduced them into an area that we are aware of. And Currently, we are collecting very fine-scale data on their movement patterns. So that's what makes this project so unique and so exciting, is that we're able to learn quite a lot about pangolins and the different environmental factors that influence their behavior. And because we're doing this long-term post-release monitoring to see whether this project is viable or not, and then also just that fine-scale data of how they're moving around into an area that they have been released into and can we get them to set
0: it's a really amazing project you mentioned in one of our previous conversations when you first brought the pangolin back you struggled to find somebody at pinder who knew the local zulu name for what they are i think that's amazing and it actually shows how rarely they've been spotted and how long it's been since they appeared in the area yes
1: Yeah, no, that for us was fascinating, like asking our staff members that live within the local communities around the reserve, if they knew the Zulu word for pangolin, which is infant And a lot of them actually only came back with the answer for us after they went on leave. And they actually got the information from the elders within the communities. And they were the only ones who had any recollection still of What is a pangolin? What did it look like? For everybody else, it was this alien creature that they've never even seen or heard of. So that for us was quite an eye-opener and also just emphasizing that there aren't any in the surrounding area anymore because if there were, they would surely have known the local word for it in Venezia. So, no, it's really just, as I said, emphasizes the fact that there aren't any left within this region, especially if you look at the high human densities around the reserves if the Pangolin was to walk through a community. Even at night, somebody would have found it. They're quite loud when they when they walk through the bush. Um, they don't follow a game path or the path of least resistance. They literally will walk through the thicket. And a lot of the time, even us as re- researchers, sometimes mistake it for a buffalo at night or a hippo or a rhino walking through shrub because it just makes the most incredible noise as it moves through the thickets breaking branches you don't think it's this little creature so we are pretty sure somebody would have seen it and also have known the local word for it if they were still around
0: well hopefully thanks to this project the local children will soon know exactly what the local word is <laughs> yes indeed. what are some of the factors that you have to look at when you're talking about pangolin reintroduction what is it that makes pinda an ideal destination as a reintroduction site for pangolins
1: yeah. So initially what made Pinda such an ideal site, or why we were selected for this reintroduction, is because we have such a large amount of various habitat types on the reserve, which is ideal because we didn't know in which areas the pangolins would like to settle. So we knew that they would be able to move into an ideal area, and from that we would be able to quantify what is suitable habitat types for pangolins within the KwaZulu-Natal province. But then apart from that, also our success with reintroducing cheetah and black rhino to Pinder was one of the other deciding factors that made Pinder ideal because we are well known for these intensive post-release monitoring projects and collecting data and sharing it. That's why we were contacted and asked to um, be a part of this project. But then nowadays looking at factors that determine ideal release sites, as we've learned a little bit more about these fascinating animals. We are starting to look at the different sites. Are there enough ants and termites available for pangolins? And is it the type of species that they prefer eating? The weird thing, because all our pangolins come in from poachers or traders, they come from all over southern Africa. Each one of our individuals actually prefer different ants or different termites. So after monitoring them for a while, you notice, okay, great, this one really likes cocktail ants or droptail ants. Okay, we know this area in the reserve is quite a high load. And then we know that's a suitable area for releasing them. We also look at, is there burrows available for them? Because they're burrowing animals, um, sleeping either in the burrows of warthogs or artfark, or even in rocky crevices, we have to make sure the area we're releasing them has those suitable chances for them to sleep in through the day. Even though you might reintroduce them into an area that you think is suitable in terms of ants and termites and burrow availability, but we have to make sure that are they actually eating within that area, and try to quantify that. Also, making sure that they're not close to any electrical fences. Luckily, with Pinder, what makes us ideal is our bottom trip wire is high enough for pangolin to move underneath. But if it was any other reserve with a low-line tripwire, it would be very important to make sure that they aren't close to your electrical fences. And then apart from that, also making sure that we're not placing them in an area that's close to move into communities once they are established, that their home range and territory won't overlap a little bit with the communities. So those are all factors we need to consider when picking ideal release sites for each individual. Which can result in it being quite tricky if you think that every individual prefers to eat something different. We're learning a lot as we go, and luckily, because they come from the rehabilitation center before they go to us, they already can give us quite a fair assessment on what each individual prefers eating. And that knowledge is vital for us in knowing where to try and introduce them here in the reserve.
0: It's quite an amazing team effort. You have the whole team finding the exact tailor-made spot for each individual pangolin.
1: Yeah, Yeah, definitely. It's an intensive project requiring a lot of people. But I think that's also what makes it so exciting is to see each person's dedication towards its project. And yeah, it does take an entire team. It's a lot of late nights out there.
0: (laughs) It takes a great deal of dedication. You mentioned that the pangolins that have come to Pinder that have been released there, come from poachers or from the illegal wildlife trade. Can you tell us more about that? What is the process and what are some of the conditions that these animals are kept in before they're rescued and taken into rehabilitation?
1: Yes, so each individual we are currently reintroducing here in Tupanda is confiscated from other poachers or traders within South Africa by the African Pangolin Working Group together with the South African Police Forces stock and theft units. So they usually receive an anonymous tip-off and then they conduct a undercover sting operation to be able to catch the poachers or traders with the pangolin and then of course to confiscate it from them. And the pangolins are kept in quite horrible conditions. Um, Our first adult mature male that was released here, he was kept in somebody's cupboard in their house some of the other individuals have been kept in buckets where there's no place for their urine or feces to run to, so they're constantly walking throughout it, which is not ideal environment for them at all. They're actually quite clean animals, in the sense that if they defecated within their own burrow, they would actually scoop it out or take it out and clean their. They usually tend to go outside from what we have been able to observe, but if not, they'll clean their, their burrows. But if you think that they're kept in these tiny buckets or crates, or even, you know, those little bags that you'll buy your potatoes in, in supermarkets, some of them are even kept in that. There's no space for the animal to be moving around. And quite recently, one of the most severe cases we've seen is one of our most recent individuals, released here into the reserve, was actually found in a, a snare. And he ended up breaking two of his ribs, had very deep wounds that caused skin necrosis. And when they confiscated him from the poachers and traders who had him for a couple of days at that stage, they weren't even able to take off the snare. So he was kept in conditions where he still had the snare just cutting in deeper and deeper every day. So, no, they're not kept in nice conditions at all. It's quite brutal. Sometimes they're even kept in like buckets that they used to brew homemade beer in. And they're still leftover beer in the bottom of the buckets. And I mean, that's not natural conditions for these very elusive, solitary animals. So they pick up a lot of diseases because of that. Um, from us as humans or even just because they're kept in areas where there's no place for their urine and feces to go. So most of the animals are quite compromised because of that.
0: So the first step after they're confiscated, is there a period of rehabilitation that happens at a vet? Or how does that particular step work before they move to Pinda?
1: So, yes, once they are confiscated from either the poachers or traders, they go to the Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Clinic, where they get health assessed. A lot of the time it involves CT scans, blood tests, and they also will be immediately microchipped. And then a lot of them require quite intensive rehabilitation. As we've just discussed, they pick up a lot of diseases from us as humans. So after the different tests, health tests have revealed what is the issue, they will get treated for those specific problems. And during the time that they spend at the Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Clinic, they will also be taken out daily to go and forage. They've got secure sites. We are completely unaware of where those sites are, that they take the animals to to go and forage on a daily basis while they're trying to heal them and rehabilitate them. But some of them aren't in a good condition and at that stage can't even feed properly and they'll get tube fed. So they'll literally use the same food that you'll use for your cats or dogs if they're not in a good health, which is your restoration care, and they'll actually will put stomachs with it, just so that they have some nutritional value while they're trying to cope with the different diseases or problems that they've picked up, whether it be broken ribs, as we spoke about that other individual skin necrosis because of a snare. And then one of the main, main problems we see coming through that they pick up from us as humans, and because of the bad conditions that they're kept in, is pneumonia. And we suspect it's because they're burying animals they will go underground. And what we've realized for now is the burrows are always 21 degrees Celsius. That's their optimal temperature. And now they're kept in cupboards or in little buckets. The temperature definitely is not 21 degrees Celsius consistently throughout the day above ground. So with that, they definitely do then start to pick up pneumonia, which is a major, major issue and takes quite a long time to, to heal. And we've even had an individual sometimes it's suppressed for about six months after that they were with poachers and traders. And it requires them to receive antibiotics for whatever time period is deemed fit for this degree of pneumonia each individual receives or experiences. And then apart from that, also using a nebulizer as we would for asthmatic human. Um, We would also to put them in a nebulizer on a daily basis for whatever time period is required for that individual. So it's quite intensive, intensive rehabilitation that's going on and extremely costly for to Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Clinic. I think, if I remember correctly, I saw a post the other day, their Instagram page, that actually said an individual pangolin per day cost them 1,500 Rand, the rehabilitation on average. So, yes, it's quite intensive. As you can see, there's a lot of different parties involved in this project, the Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Clinic, the African Pangolin Working Group, the South African Police Forces, and without all the different compartments and different organisations working together, it would not be feasible. And that specific individual we were talking about that got stuck in the snake, he actually spent 110 days at the Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Clinic to so have his ribs healed and his skin healed. It's a costly process, indeed.
0: It's actually quite ironic that pangolins were highlighted because of a disease that we thought they might have given us in terms of COVID-19. And yet there's so little awareness or thought of all the diseases that we might pass on to them.
1: Yeah, no, definitely. And if you think that it's such a solitary burrowing animal, it would never have been exposed to the diseases we as humans carry. And now suddenly they're kept in these confined areas uh, with humans interacting with them constantly. And as we said, also not very humane conditions for the pangolin in itself and what it's used to out there in the wild.
0: Charlie, once the pangolins have gone through the rehabilitation at the Johannesburg Wildlife Hospital and Pinder has been identified as the release site, what is the process from then on? It's not quite as easy as just taking them to the reserve and releasing them there, is it?
1: No, not at all. The initial couple of days, each individual is different, some require a little bit more time. We'll spend soft releasing them. So, a soft release involves us taking them out to preferred release site and taking them for foraging walks. Now, a foraging walk can last for anything from two hours up to six hours. And which you literally follow them for that amount of time, see that they're feeding, we'll have to weigh them before walking after walking. Even though you can see them feeding, we don't know how well they're fed because the ants and termites are all below ground. It's interesting, sometimes you think this animal has had such a good feeding session and you literally saw its nose in the ground 24/7, you take it back and it's actually dropped weight, which means that area doesn't have as much ants and termites as what you suspected. Or vice versa, it can be that it like, only fed for a short little amount of times but really fed well and picked up a lot of weight because there's high densities in ants of termites in small little locations and maybe the nest has larvae and eggs still in which is much higher protein than consuming the adult form and that will result in them picking up weight a lot quicker as well. So what we try and investigate during that soft release phase is are they feeding well? Are they picking up weight? And then lastly, are they starting to look for a burrow? Are they settling? Or are they just trying to sprint back somewhere, like we call it homing tendency? Um, Are they just trying to walk back to where they came from, wherever that is? So that's all factors we need to consider. In general, if things go well, soft release is only for three days, but we have had a couple of individuals where the soft release has taken us about 18 days before they've settled. And then it's the exact same area we're trying every night. And it's because you can physically see that it's got all the factors that this individual needs. It's just one that takes a little bit longer to adapt to its new environment. But there's also been some special cases. Uh, last year we received a hand individual and he was extremely small when he came to us. And because he was hand he wasn't strong enough to open up Ant's nests and tomato Mounds for himself. And he also still had to learn how to drink water. He was so used to getting water out of a syringe. We had to teach it and see, is he going to find barrows, Start digging burrows for himself. And, Swells at Joburg started getting too hard for him to forage there during his rehabilitation process. So the African Pagoland Working Group, together with the Johannesburg Wildlife Veterinary Clinic, contacted us and said, Are we willing to take on this unique case? Spend quite a little bit of time in his rehabilitation process before we can release him into the wild. And we actually ended up spending four months with this individual, taking him out on a daily basis opening up ants and tomat mounds until he started getting stronger. We would open up a little bit, let him dig and eat. But over time, he got it stronger, and we ended up not having to even open up anything. So we would go walking with our our pitchforks ready. But, yeah, he's a very unique individual. We're quite attached to him because of that. And he's the first hand-reared individual ever to be released back into the wild. And he was released last year, November, after four months of – being rehabilitated here and he's doing exceptionally well it's about a year now some of our guests have even seen leopard interacting with him and he's remarkably resilient finding his own burrows he even digs his own burrows sometimes he's been able to survive predator encounters so that for us is just a major indication of what can be done for pangolin rehabilitation, and currently we also have another youngster with us. It was a wild confiscated youngster, not a hand-reared individual. This one is a little bit different. We don't have to open and dig open the ants and termites mounds for this specific female. She's a lot stronger, but she also just requires some time to be a little bit bigger, bigger and stronger because. The scales get harder over time. So when they're quite young, a predator can actually bite through the scales and end up killing the pangolin. We don't know for how long the pangolin would still have been with its mom. If it was still with the mother, she would actually protect it from the predator by rolling around it. And then her scales, of course, will take the force of the predator biting down. And even our hina with the strongest bite force in Africa can't bite through the scales of a mature adult pangolin. So she would then predict the path. And that's why with these very young individuals, we're just waiting for the scales to get a little bit harder before we can release them.
0: So obviously predators would be one of the threats that they would face once they've been released. What are some of the other challenges they might encounter once they're out there in the reserve?
1: So for us, the biggest threat is suppressed diseases that they've picked up from humans while they were being poached or traded and therefore, for us, it's vital with this post-release monitoring. Each pangolin is fitted with two different tracking devices. The one is a VHF tag, and the other one is a satellite tag. And from that, we can see the movement of the animal. If you see the animal moving extremely small distances at night, it's usually an indication we've had a couple of, well, one specific adult female that barely moved at night. So, and upon investigating, we, would, we noticed she had a limp. And she also had something very similar to human trench rocks. So we think she just wasn't kept in ideal conditions and maggots started getting into the skin underneath the scales because she wasn't in a good health. So it's vital for us to monitor them closely, to go and weigh them initially as well. It sounds weird, even though these secretive animals, sometimes the weighing is the only indication for us that something is wrong with the animal. Our first adult male we released here, we wouldn't have picked up that he developed pneumonia three months afterwards if we weren't weighing him at that stage still on a weekly basis. So as we see that they settle, we definitely start weighing them less, but initially after the soft release, we'll weigh them every second day. And then we'll start going to about once a week, and thereafter once every two weeks, down to the point where we get it only when we're doing the tag changes, we'll weigh them, which will occur about once every three months. And it's just vital to see, are the animals doing well? With that specific male that developed pneumonia, he suddenly dropped an entire kilogram of weight in the space of two weeks clear indication that something was wrong and upon picking him up and listening a little bit closer unfortunately that was the only way for us to find out what was wrong we could actually hear him have a wheezy chest and that was just suppressed pneumonia that only developed three months after his release so for us that's a major issue these animals face or one of the biggest threats is the suppressed diseases that they've picked up But apart from that, it's also making sure that they are establishing with their home ranges and territories within the reserve, and that they're not actually moving out of the reserve. These animals can cover a remarkable distance at night, and even with the soft release, you'll think, okay, great, this animal's displayed no homing tendency. About a month after release, it can suddenly just be like, today I'm going to try and walk home back wherever it was. And... In South Africa, a lot of reserves have very high human densities around them. It's a big risk for us if a pangolin would walk off the reserve and into the community. Surely somebody would find it and pick it up and then it would have been a waste of time, having done this whole rehabilitation process, soft release process, to give the animal a chance of wildlife. So that's part of the other reason why it's so important for us to monitor, to see exactly where are they establishing and then for us as researchers, the biggest challenge for us that we face, not the penguins, is in summers, very late nights, walking in our reserve. They're definitely active a lot later in summer. They tend to be nocturnal, but in winter, we can get them coming out of the burrows at about two o'clock in the afternoon. On extremely cold days, even 11 o'clock in the morning, which is ideal for us to so talk to them. But in summer, it's suddenly eight o'clock, ten o'clock nights so where they're only emerging at that time. And then for us walking around big five game reserves to try and monitor them, weigh them, check up, listen to their breathing, um, see if they're feeding, where are they settling, it hasn't resulted in some hairy encounters. <laughs> um, yeah, where people have walked into buffalo and hippo at night. So, but it makes for good stories to tell around the
0: fire. <laughs> I can just imagine. How big is your monitoring team?
1: So our management and conservation team, including the researchers, are eight people. And all eight of us are actively involved in the whole soft release and monitoring process. But apart from that, when we get these special cases, like those very young individuals that require longer times, we do end up getting external help. Um, Usually one or two people that will assist us until the animal is ready for its soft release to come and help us walk those animals on a daily basis. Because that one individual can require up to six to eight hours of your time per day. So that will then get external people to help. In general, we eight people, and then we, ha- we had those special cases will go up to about 10 people.
0: And obviously this is not the only project that you're working on at any given time. So it's very time intensive.
1: Definitely. All eight of us are quite involved in other projects. And the eight even includes the reserve managers. So you can think that they've got a lot of other things on their plate as well.
0: It's a great deal of dedication, definitely. It's obvious that you've learned a lot about pangolins and their behavior. Is there anything that surprised you? Do the pangolins have individual personalities or quirks?
1: Yes, yes, definitely. Each pangolin is very unique. Apart from its feeding behavior, some of them are more shy than others. We have some that There's no better way to put it, but they absolutely, absolutely hate the presence of a human. Um, They'll try their best to avoid you in all ways. They'll even just like if they hear you walking past, they'll go and lie flat, hide in the thickets. Where it's even with their tracking devices, we've literally have walked past them because they're trying to hide from us. But then we've had other individuals that really just doesn't care if we are around there. And that young male that was hand-reared, he's a very special individual for us. I think he's a lot of people's favorites on the reserve because he allows us to observe him as a wild pangolin just walking about. He really doesn't care if we're there. He'll even like, if he thinks the ants or termites are underneath your feet, he'll walk right up to you and start digging uh, literally between your feet. So he's quite an interesting character also because he was hand-read, he definitely doesn't have that fear of humans as the other individuals. And he's starting to go through what we suspect is sexual maturity. <laughs> and he will even try and chase us out of his his habitat or his home range that day if he's a little bit grumpy. We suspect usually he was a predator the night before. He's extra grumpy. We have observed that type of behavior with him. Um, and then he'll literally, he'll actively chase us out of his his area, being like, please don't disturb me now. This is my home range. You can't establish here. <laughs> like, yeah, he's a very special, special individual. Um, but my favorite is actually the male we reintroduced here first, a mature adult male. And he is also quite a chilled individual, not as relaxed around humans as a youngster. youngster, um, But a lot of the time, he just exhibits bizarre behavior. Even on like hot days, we've found him like lying outside, stretched out on his back, looking like he's actually sleeping on a hammock in between two logs. Um, he's just very quirky behavior. And like any of our other pangolins, he just gets himself into the most bizarre positions for sleeping. Yeah, he's just a very fascinating one. And then apart from that, one of our very other special individuals is a mature fe- female we reintroduced last year. And she was one of those cases where they really didn't like humans. We don't know what condition she was kept in, but she was one that made it quite clear. She would, if we had to pick her up for taking her to do tag changes or to take her for her foraging walks, put her in the transportation box to take her out into the field, um, she would actively try and flick us with her tail. Now, their tails are extremely strong and very agile, and the two scales at the back end of the tail is by far the sharpest and the thickest. And she would try and flick that into your head or into your stomach. And if you had to carry her for a little while, she would try and dig her claws into your belly or into your arm. And she would actually draw blood. She was quite fierce. We were all petrified of having to work with her. We would take beds who had to do the tag change with her tonight because we just didn't want to get close to her. But over time She's actually um, calmed down quite nicely. We don't do any guest work with her just because she's quite a shy individual. But she's now, definitely, I think have learned that we we as a team pose no threat to her. And if we do her tag changes now, she's currently on like weighing once every two months. She's actually started to uncurl a little bit if we pick her up and just peek out her nose and sniff at us and she's no longer flicking her tail. And that behavior we only noticed six months after we had her here after she and that was when she started establishing her home range in her territory before that she was running around constantly and for us that behavior is remarkable to see that animal suddenly, I think understanding that we're actually trying to assist it in some way or another and just displaying that clear difference in actively trying to flick us with the tail to being a lot more passive and not actively aggressive but it's still try and handle as little as possible and let her do her own thing because she's got such a such a um, shy nature and we suspect they got a very strong sense of smell and at the rehabilitation clinic they've noticed that they um, will build a little bit of a bond with their handler the person responsible for their rehabilitation so we think what happened Specific female, she must have gotten used to our scent. We've always been the same people doing her tag changes. We haven't swapped it out just so she could only get used to the scent of two or three people only. And it's quite remarkable to see how she's definitely gotten used to the scent of those two or three people and how she's established and has calmed down a lot. I think if anybody else was to pick her up, she'll she'll be quite fierce as well. <laughs> But for us, that was a remarkable change in her behavior. And I think because of that, it's opened our eyes to the different types of individuals, like having that hand reared individual that's so, like, just doesn't care about human presence and you don't influence his behavior in any way to this female that would actively try and run from you. And if you did get close to her to see if she's in good health, feeding, picking up weight, um, settling tag changes, whatever the case might have been for research, how her behaviors changed over time. For us, the biggest reward was with her was seeing her settling um, because she was running for six months. She, she was definitely the one that took the longest to, to break her homing tendency and to get established within the reserve.
0: Charlie, you mentioned doing guest work with, with the pangolins. Is there an opportunity for guests at Pinder to get involved in some way? And how do you balance this with trying to keep the pangolins as free from outside influence as possible?
1: Yes, yes, indeed. So at Pinder, we offer a pangolin walking experience for our guests where they get to come out with one of our research team members and they get to assist us in whatever research needs to be conducted that week, whether it be following the pangolin, observing it, seeing that it's feeding or downloading tag data, or if by chance, if it does correlate with the tag change to change the tag at that stage, or even just weighing if it needs to be weighed at that specific time. If we don't need to handle the pangolin, of course we won't do it. But most of the time it's going out there, checking up, seeing that the animal's in good health, walking around properly, it didn't develop a limp. It is, in, as I said, in good health, but also um, downloading that satellite tag data. And then, of course, the cost associated with it is feeding straight back into the project. These tags that are fitted to the penguins are extremely expensive, and we have to replace them about every three to four months. So it's an extremely costly project. And then the funding um, generated from these guests' pangolin walking experiences goes towards covering the tags for us. So, yes, it is definitely an opportunity for guests to see pangolins and to see the research that we are busy conducting. But most of the time, it is following and downloading data and no human interaction from outside towards the pangolin. So it's quite a remarkable experience. And for us, which is very special about it is, we get quite used to seeing pangolins. It's actually horrific in that regard because they're such a special animal to see. But then seeing that pure delight on somebody's face for seeing such an elusive pang- animal for the first time, it just makes it all the worthwhile well for us again
0: as mm. well. It's definitely a very unique experience. Yes,
1: yes, indeed.
0: For our listeners, due to security concerns, we aren't able to discuss the actual numbers of the current population of pangolin on the reserve. Besides its survival rate... How do you measure the success of the project?
1: Yes, so there's four factors that we or boxes that we're trying to tick. And the first one is are we giving the animal a second chance at a wildlife? And secondly, are they able to establish home ranges and territories? Then the third box we've already ticked is are they surviving more than a year post-release from various factors, whether it being predators out there, or these suppressed diseases. So far we've been able to tick that for a couple of individuals by now. And then the last one, and this is the one I'm the most excited about, is a reproduction event. So you have the first wild-born pup after reintroducing as a viable population as a population that is reproducing. So. That's the last box we are now trying to tick. And we're quite excited about it. Um, We've had a male and a female following one another now for a couple of months. And we actually suspect that the female might be pregnant. She's picking up weight quite drastically. (laughs) So we're keeping our fingers crossed that within the next couple of months, we're going to see a wild pup roaming around that was actually a female and a male that was both reintroduced here and that mated on the reserve. And... Yeah, that's our last factor or box to tick for measuring the success of the project. And we're quite optimistic and hopeful that we'll be able to tick it quite soon. And our entire team is very excited for seeing a, a pangolin pup for the first time. None of us have seen a, a brand new pangolin pup.
0: I think that would be an amazing result to see and so exciting for the whole team. Yeah, definitely. <laughs> Charlie, personally, what is it that gives you hope for the future of pangolins? Both in terms of the project you're working on at Pinda and the status of the species internationally?
1: Coming to internationally, people are becoming more aware of pangolins and that the species actually exists. And because of it, it's also that it's been banned within this year from the traditional Chinese medicine and also from the meat markets and being consumed. And with that, there's already been a significant drop in. The number of reporting of pangolin seizures since December 2019 throughout Asia and that's very exciting for pangolin conservation. But then apart from that I think what gets me very excited is this project. Um, It's just an example of what can be done for pangolin conservation and how much more there is still to learn about these species. Every day we're still asking new questions and it's just something that shows you we can reintroduce penguins back into an area where they've gone locally extinct. What I'm hoping for is that other places catch on as well, and we're hoping to share the research that we're collecting. We're trying to get scientific papers published on the data that we're collecting, and we're hoping that that will serve as guidelines for other places following suit in reintroducing and Trying to get pangolins established back into an area that they've gone extinct, or are just supplementing um, current populations as well? So it's it's something to get very excited about. Pangolins are extremely remarkable, and unlike any other creature out there. Also, just seeing how people have become more aware of them, we've literally have seen a change in, in people's perceptions towards this animal. and Constantly hearing how many people have fallen in love with penguins in the last year or so. So it's something to get excited about. And we're really hoping that people's eyes will open up to their current plight and also what can be done.
0: Well, it's really exciting to know that you're part of a project that's groundbreaking and that's setting a precedent. Hopefully your research will guide the way and smooth the process for reintroductions going forward.
1: Yeah, that is the main aim is to share the knowledge that's been collected here and we're hoping to make it easier for other people following suit and learning from our mistakes.
0: Charlie, thank you so much for chatting to us about pangolins. It's been fascinating to get a glimpse into their weird and unusual world. Best of luck with that pangolin pup.
1: Well, thank you very much. <laughs> if there is one, it will definitely make quite a bit of news and excitement here on the reserve.
0: I'm sure it will. Since the recording of this podcast, we have received the good news that a pangolin pup has been born at Pinda. Charlie reports that both mom and pup are doing well and are being carefully monitored in a non-intrusive manner. We look forward to being able to share more updates on Pinda's pangolins soon. For more information about the threats that the species is facing throughout Africa and Asia, as well as a more in-depth look at the pangolin rehabilitation process, log in to nbeyond.com or follow N Beyond Travel on Facebook for details on our two Pangolin live discussions coming up on February 11th and February 18th. Thank you for listening to N Beyond Fireside Chats. Don't forget to subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode. If you have any comments or feedback, or would like to suggest a topic you'd like to hear us talk about, drop us an email at firesidechats at com. We'd love to hear from you.